let yourself listen tonight to what I have to say and to what Jetson Ma says um, as a meditation. Let the sounds come and go and the meanings touch you as they will. What's valuable, take. What's not, just leave it here. Don't worry about that. Um, Because if it's true, it will resonate with the part of your own heart that knows what's true. So let yourself listen in this way. Um, I'm so glad to have you come back and visit. It's really a treat and a pleasure. Um, And um, I was reflecting a couple of stories I want to start with. Um, You'll you'll be in the second story. But um, I went to a school, (laughs) sort of lead up to that story, um, I went to I went to, to school back in the 1960s and got interested in Buddhism and and uh, majored in Asian studies and so forth at Dartmouth College and then from there went immediately asked into the Peace Corps and asked them to send me to a Buddhist country so I could go study in a monastery. Um, but anyway, um, a few years ago I got contacted by the alumni office of Dartmouth College. They wanted to do a cover story in the alumni magazine about weird graduates. And they asked if, if I would be willing to pose in some way, you know. And so they did. They came and they interviewed me, and my picture was on the cover and so forth. And we had a long interview, some of which I talked about the things that I do, teaching and having been a Buddhist monk and so forth. Um, a, a significant part of the interview I talked about what wise education meant to me, what I'd learned, since it was for an educational institution, and how the education I had at a good Ivy League school was primarily cerebral. I mean, I learned philosophy and history and how to write and think in certain ways, but there was very little attention to um, what makes a human being happy how to deal with the sufferings, which I had quite a bit of from my own insecurity and from my family history, which was a pretty painful one, Um, uh, you know, to the social unrest of the time. Um, What did I I do with all this stuff? How did I work with my own sadness or loneliness or the things that were driving me? And so I said, I went from Dartmouth basically into a monastery, and I got the second half of education, which is the education about one's inner life um, and how to work with and understand thoughts and emotions and the the whole inner life from which the whole outer society is born. And I said, so for me, an ideal education would be if a a place like Dartmouth would include that or something. They cut out all that part of the interview. (laughs) They didn't put any of that in because... It's the alumni magazine. It's their fundraising vehicle, right? <laughs> Nothing critical, only, you know, glowing things when I say, well, this part was missing and I didn't really, I needed to go somewhere else. But it speaks to um, one of our tasks in spiritual life, which is both to see what are the blessings and benefits of what's presented to us in different ways, and also to have a sense of trusting ourselves when there's something missing or there's something more. Um, because that inner knowing and inner voice also needs to be honored. So, um, I guess it was at least 15 years ago, um, this, is, this is to me one of the high points of, of um, many years of, of practice and teaching and being with colleagues. We were together in a meeting in um, Dharamsala, I think it was 1993, one of the first of these um, Buddhist 
Western Buddhist teachers' meetings um, at, uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in his living quarters in his sort of palace, um, modest palace. And uh, it was a time when uh, a number of us who'd been practicing and teaching already for 20 years in some cases were coming up with some of the problems in the interface of Buddhism coming from the, from the East to the West, um, problems of how to, how to maintain virtue and conduct among teachers and students in ways that really were hard cross-culturally. And one of the problems that came up big time was that about the role of women, because um, the Buddhist cultures are relatively patriarchal societies, um, relatively is a mild word. They're very patriarchal societies, and the whole Buddhist hierarchy is is um, is two thousand five hundred years of, of patriarchal tradition. Um, so we're sitting in this room, and I had the role in this particular meeting of being the moderator of pe- people there and His Holiness. And this topic came up. There were several topics that were kind of uncomfortable for the lamas, I have to say. Um, the conduct of teachers, or the misconduct, was one of them. That was a whole other thing we had to deal with. So the whole role of women and the patriarchy came up, and it wasn't terribly comfortable. Um, but His Holiness has a lot of respect for Jets and Ma, and actually, in general, for nuns in the feminine. And so it was time to speak about this, and my recollection, anyway, is that Jesse Ma said, let me talk about my own experience. Here I was studying at the monastery for some years of Kamto Rinpoche, my teacher. There were a hundred men and me, right? And then the other women were relegated, not just there, but in other places. The men got the teachings and the support and the money and so forth. And the women were outside the walls of the monastery trying to scrape up enough money even to feed themselves, not to even the nuns, not to speak of actually getting teachings. And very rarely did they even get teachings. They were just sort of allowed to be hangers-on in the periphery. And the description that she gave, which was um, both personal, experiential, and eloquent, um, ended with His Holiness putting his hands, uh, his head in his hands and weeping um, and saying, I didn't know it was this bad. And then our dear friend Sylvia Wetzel said, well, may I add to this, you know, to me, you know, as the moderator, would it be all right if I teach a meditation to His Holiness? So, okay, here's His Holiness surrounded by a number of senior great lamas and so forth, and this kind of upstart Western woman says, may I teach you a meditation? <laughs> so we all took a breath. Okay, Sylvia, you're on. You know, she's following Zetsama. And she said, um, I would like to uh, invite you to do a visualization. Visualization is a big practice in Vajrayana and Tibetan Buddhism, but perhaps one that you haven't done before. So please all close your eyes. Okay. So she stands up. She said, now, in this room that we're seated, which has on the walls um, the images of 18 different enlightened beings, um, you know, and in the front is His Holiness the Dalai Lama and this whole series of other great senior lamas and teachers. I would like you to f- imagine and sense yourself in this room with one small change. Imagine that all the paintings and images on the walls and on the altar, instead of being men, were images of women. These were the 18 great enlightened 
Mars and Lenin, um, who had passed down the Dharma for generations upon generations, and on the altar it was all, all women. And in fact, seated in the main chair in the front of the room was His Holiness the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama, who always came back in a woman's body because the female body was the best vehicle for awakening the profound wisdom of emptiness and compassion. And although male bodies were all right, the female body was the best way to do it. And she was surrounded by all of her great lamas and teachers and supporters who all happened to be in female bodies. And you are a man seated toward the rear of the room. We've made space for you to come and sit. And we don't mind. It's all right. We, you know, you could sit a little closer sometimes. But mostly in the back would be fine. Um, we've decided to always incarnate in the female form because it's the highest form uh, of human birth. Um, and while you're welcome to come in and hear some of the teachings, we would also like to ask if you wouldn't mind helping in the kitchen afterward with some cooking and cleaning. And feel what it's like to be in this room as a man with all of this. And their eyes opened, and it was really a fabulous moment because they'd never visualized anything like that before. <laughs> you know. And his holiness after weeping and then having this experience, you know, had met his match, basically, I would say. <laughs> and said, yes, I will do it. I will do whatever I can do. I promise I will, you know. And it was just a great moment. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Chetama is going to speak later on about hope and fear, one of the themes for tonight. Um, but last week... For those who came, we talked a little bit, um, it was right after the elections, about enlightened leadership and bodhisattva, because when one becomes the king or the prime minister in some of these Buddhist countries, one of the things that's part of the ritual of taking office is to take the bodhisattva vows. Say, I will use this circumstance to serve the benefit and the awakening of all those um, within this country or wherever I'm given power. And what it means, especially in these times that are economically so difficult and politically so much upheaval and, and uh, ecologically so forth, um, what it means to take an inner vow, which is to set the compass of the heart toward awakening and compassion, um, no matter what happens. It's kind of an inner commitment that no matter what the circumstances, gain and loss or difficulty or beautiful things come, um, the, the direction or the way that I will receive these changing circumstances will be uh, to use them to awaken compassion and, and care for as many and all beings and to awaken understanding. Um, and when that bodhisattva vow of um, may I serve, may I awaken, may I bring the best of my gifts through myself to the benefit of all, then you go through the vicissitudes of life, um, as you all know. Um, but instead of them being problems, because the inner compass is set, because we have this inner wisdom, then when things are difficult, you can, you can say, oh, this is a chance to develop compassion. And when things are beautiful, you can say, oh, this is a place to develop gratitude. And each of the circumstances for the bodhisattva is the perfect one to develop and mature in patience or compassion or, or 
um, dedication or a deepening wisdom. Um, now, we tend to think of spiritual life, or some people do anyway, sometimes. It's worst, it's like a grim duty, you know. It's like you have to take your vitamins and go to the gym and you have to do your meditation practice and a little therapy or something. Um, or, if not a grim duty, as some form of sacrifice. Um, but there's a whole other way to hold it. And that is really about, uh, that it is about beauty. And to take the bodhisattva vow, or to see someone who leads from the heart of a bodhisattva, um, is to see a kind of beauty manifested in the world. And our supermarkets are full of all these um, beauty magazines, right? All these covers of airbrushed, you know, models trying to, you know, say this is what beauty is. Um, but the real beauty is inner beauty the most genuine and delicious and inspiring and wonderful possibility for beauty. The radiance is really inner beauty. The poet Ryokan, he writes, the rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in the world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world, abandon yourself, and let the moon and flowers guide you along the way. And this kind of inner beauty is really the beauty of um, purity of heart, of virtue, of, of dedication to what you really value, of living from your deepest inner knowing. And I see it a lot in monasteries. Not always, you know, there are grouchy monks and nuns and things like that, but I remember visiting, she's laughing over there, right? <laughs> There's, um, but I remember visiting and, and living in, you know, forest monasteries and Zen monasteries. And even the, there was a beautiful big Catholic monastery near our center in Massachusetts, Spencer Abbey, of Father Thomas Keating and Theophane. And going in um, and visiting them one day and meeting a group of, of men there who seemed so happy. There was a kind of radiance to them that had a quality of contentment. Um, and warm-heartedness. They were really gracious in greeting us. And silence and presence and appreciation, whatever you know, we brought as a gift or said was appreciated. There was just this quality of presence and beauty. Uh, okay, this is the best advertisement for spiritual life, is just to see these people's faces, because there's so much joy in it. Um, it also makes you look younger. You know, it happens. It happens on retreats. People will come and do a ten-day retreat here, and we call it the Vipassana facelift or something. <laughs> ten days later, or two weeks later, and it's like, oh, there's this brightness. There is of people's eyes and and coming back into yourself. I would call it purity, actually. And it's a hard word to use in this culture because we then think about judging and what's impure. But it doesn't mean that. It's like the innocence of a child on their best morning, you know, when they look at you with so much love and delight and curiosity and openness. But it's a deeper octave of that. It's the kind of mature purity. And so spiritual practice in life is not just to overcome stress and suffering and release our restlessness and loneliness and come to terms with the sorrow we have and the sorrows of the world. Yes, that's there. But, as the texts begin, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. 
Let your mind quiet, let your heart open, and let a deep beauty come into you, a profound happiness for simply being present, for being alive, for this mystery of incarnation with its 10,000 joys and sorrows that keep coming. There's the, there is within you the Buddha to be awakened. And in one forest monastery where I practiced, the, the training was to look for the beautiful, it was, you know, to see the beautiful orchid or see the beauty of the sunset, but especially it was to look for sobanajita, to look for, which is the Pali or Sanskrit word, for beautiful states of mind. And tune yourself to notice a moment of contentment, a moment of ease, a moment of forgiveness where you were irritated and you let that go, a moment of appreciation, and let those deepen. And in meditation, part of what you want to do as you sit and quiet yourself is to let the sense of stillness or joy when it comes or the happiness that might come or the ease, let those expand, let those fill your body, let those fill your being so that there comes a sense that you can rest in well-being along with all the other stuff that comes. And then what happens when you find it is it gets kind of communicated, sort of it's self-communicable or something. People catch it from you. So one of the beautiful stories from the time of the Buddha was Ananda, his attendant and one of his chief disciples, was wandering through a village um, on a hot day and came to a well. There was a young woman standing there who was an untouchable named Pakati. And in India, untouchables, um, it's... Caste there is very much like the worst of a racist society, basically. If you're an untouchable, you can't touch the food of another person. It's not just you can't drink from the same drinking fountain. Even your shadow crossing the food of a higher caste um, makes pollutes it. And Ananda went to this woman, and he said, um, It is a hot day, sister. Would you please uh, draw me uh, a bucket, a, a, a drink of water? And she said, Oh, holy one... Um, uh, I could not do so for my own... I am born low caste, I am low born, and by touching that water I would pollute your holiness. And Ananda was known for his warm-heartedness, for his graciousness, for this great kindness that he had. And he looked at her with that, and he said, Oh no, sister, I asked not about caste, I asked for water, please. And so she drew this water and handed him and he drank and thanked her and then went off to the monastery and she followed him in the story um, and basically she fell in love with him <laughs> and she came to the Buddha and she prostrated herself and she said I don't know what happened but I just had the most amazing experience with your disciple Ananda and he was so gracious and so kind and I've fallen in love with him and I want to tend to him and follow him wherever he goes and the Buddha looked at her and he said Pakati your sentiments are beautiful you know, I understand what you say, but you, you have misunderstood one thing. It is not Ananda that you've fallen in love with, but his kindness and purity. And you have fallen in love with this because you carry this in yourself. Trust the nobility of this kindness and purity and nurture it, and you will shine more beautiful than the highest born, highest caste in this land, for it is this nobility of heart and nothing else that makes one a true human being, a true awakened one, and sort of blessed her and, and, and taught her and sent her. And the teachings are so clear that every being has dignity and nobility as their birthright. 
And you can think about it. What inspires you? What brings you to that? What places? You know, what practices? If you have a meditation practice, what, what people? And what does it mean to tune to that nobility and that beauty um, and to look for it and nurture it in yourself? Now, one last thing. Um, the Buddha came out of a tradition of being a warrior prince. And he first did, you know, everybody knows the story of the Buddha. After all the great, um, you know, pleasures of the palace, he saw old age and sickness and death and said, I have to find out how to release myself and all beings from this round of suffering in the world. And so he went under, undertook these six years of great ascetic practices following the yogis until he just about died. He starved himself and he did beds of nails and he did, you know, standing out in the hot sun, looking at the sun with his eyes wide open until um, he was burning out the impurities in himself. He really tried to fight against himself and he had this great warrior ambition, I'm going to do it, I'm going to get enlightened. And after six years where he was lying there almost dead, it didn't work. Um, And it came to him, it occurred to him at that time, that maybe I've missed the, the way. Maybe I've been a little excessive in this. <laughs> and just at that time, Sujata, uh, which means beautiful birth, Sujata, a milkmaid from the nearby village, came by with a pot of uh, milk rice, which is kind of, it's the, it's the gruel in the morning in India that you have on a cool morning that's, that's sweet and delicious and nourishing. And in a way, it's the, it's the visible expression of the feminine, really, of nurturance. And she said, may I offer this to you? And the Buddha realized at that po- moment, that was really the first big part of his enlightenment, he had the realization of the middle path that things had been really out of balance for him, and that the ambition and the striving and the warrior and all of that that we might associate in some ways with the masculine was out of balance. So it was an unhealthy masculine. And he took the milk rice, and he began to nurture himself. And in doing so, taking this from Sujata, he came back into a balance that allowed him to sit under the Bodhi tree and get enlightened. Now... um, the world is out of balance in this way, if we reflect about it. Um, the ecological destruction, the kind of um, consumerism and commercialism, um, there's a tremendous amount of ambition and grasping, and um, it's leading to environmental problems, to um, financial problems. Uh, I mean, it also leads to warfare and continuing racism and all of that kind of stuff, in a way the imbalance of these. Um, And so when we reflect in our own meditation, we have to reflect what is a wise way to live as a man or as a woman with these energies of life, with yin and yang, the masculine and feminine. And Jatsuma made a vow long ago, I vow to attain enlightenment in a female form, no matter how many lifetimes it takes. First, because the female form is the best way to do it. Is that right? <laughs> Did you take that vow? I read it. I don't know if it's true. You... <laughs> That's what Vicki McKenzie said, but what does she know? Her biographer. I'll, I'll let you 
answer as you like later as you speak. You can think about that. But I read that anyway. I read the Jetson Mane this vow. Um, what I do know is that she has um, dedicated herself to writing this imbalance in uh, both in the Buddhist tradition and in some way imbalance in our lives because we as men or women need to find a balance to live wisely. Um, and in writing the balance, then the purity that I talked about, the beauty, comes. And it's a balance that involves courage and strength, and I know that's true of Jetson Ma and her nuns and those who practice. They practice with tremendous courage and diligence and strength, uh, but also with a kind of graciousness. And without those two, without a receptivity as well, things become out of balance. Um, I thought I would end what I had to say, see if there's time, um, by reading um, a, a sutra, a short sutra, that you've heard, but I, it would be an honor to read it um, with you sitting here, that was written by Rick Fields, a good friend of mine, um, uh, called The Very Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess. And it's done in the form of a Buddhist text, which is often the dialogue between the Buddha and someone who comes for teachings. So if you listen. Thus I have imagined. Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses shining with morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow, transparent as dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she was surely a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eye of discriminating awareness wisdom, was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long hair was deep blue, her eyes fathomless pits of space, her third eye a bloodshot song of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, O goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere, and now I'm not sure where to go. <laughs> you can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heel like a bird, darting away, but just a little away. Or you can come after me, but you can't pretend I'm not here. This is my forest, too. And with that, the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock beneath a bow tree that sprang full leaf to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality and... Not so fast, Buddha, the goddess said. I am reality. The earth stood still. The oceans paused, the wind itself listened, and a thousand bodhisattvas and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in the conversation. I know I take my life in my hand, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances. Light rays like sunbeams shot forth so brightly that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. 
And then they exchanged thoughts. And the illumination was as bright as a diamond candle. And then they exchanged minds. And there was a great silence, as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies, and then clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha. And so on back and forth for a hundred thousand thousand kalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, but this. The Buddha is emptiness. The goddess is bliss. The goddess is emptiness. And the Buddha is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It is true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed non-dual mantra. Just to say this, to hear this, makes everything the way it truly is perfectly okay. So here it is. Earthwalker, Skywalker, hey, silent one, hey, great talker. Not two, not one, not separate, not apart. This is the heart. Bliss is emptiness. Emptiness is bliss. Be your breath, ah, smile, hey, and relax, ho, and remember, wherever you go, you can't miss. So it's an honor to read that in your presence, dear Jetsuma. Let us take a short break, 10 minutes, and then Jetsuma will have time for her teachings and perhaps some questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.